Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Between a full-time job in IT and a full-time job in podcasting, it gets harder and harder to sit down and read the books I'm interested in. This is where Audible comes in. I can listen on my daily commute, relaxing, or while out running errands and still get in the books I've been wanting to get into. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Now you can try Audible risk-free with a special 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. That's audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. Don't let your busy life get in the way of that great book you've been wanting to read. Go get your free trial of Audible today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is Jeffrey, and we've talked about many times before that I experience problems and struggles with my mental health. And really, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy does work. It's helped for me. But but what is is therapy exactly? It's it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work or you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's really time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles. And, and it's time to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And there's a special offer to Nerdery and Murdery listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nerderyandmurdery. That's betterhelp.com forward slash nerderyandmurdery. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. The original series, two words, William Shatner. It ends there. The guy was a disaster. His whole career has been a disaster. He had two good lines and in his entire career. The first line, shh, shh. The second line, get over Macho Grande. I'll never get over Macho Grande. Those wounds run pretty deep. So that's pretty much the end of that discussion. Welcome to episode 27 of Nerdery and Murdery. Avete y siete. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, thank you to Dr. Rod Evil for his open for this week's show. <laughs> Dr. Rod Evil. Uh, appreciate him recording that for us. He's a, a, a another fellow curmudgeon yes. with, with me. <laughs> He's another one of my collection. Yes. But happy Christmas season. Since we're in December. Yes. And uh, everybody's getting ready. Uh, if you haven't already started buying your Christmas presents, uh, you know, I've I've heard that shipping is pretty delayed and whatnot. Yeah. So hopefully you started early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, found that out as I was, uh, as we were shopping for new new chairs yesterday. Uh, we, we originally... Um, talked about uh, at Lazy Boy we were going to get something at Lazy Boy and for for custom stuff the estimated ship date was January or February wow yeah yeah i mean it's everything's delayed it, it's it's shipping and of course the microchip shortage uh going Yay. on so yeah that sucks but i did wear my uh, my logo shirt as i went out shopping nice when, thank you, you know, wanted to you know make sure as i'm out there people yes. take a take a look uh, so it was a lot of fun. I put a picture on uh, on Instagram of me laying in what's going to be my new chair when whenever it gets here. So so happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Not quite, but almost. Yeah. Uh, I'd started to wonder. Uh, I was telling you that uh, we seem to have lost our our listener in Germany for a while, but then suddenly they were back they're for back. episodes, yeah. and maybe it looks like they were catching up. Maybe, yeah. maybe. So that's the, they're 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 a dedicated listener for sure, yes. along with some of our others. So happy that they're there. I, I was really kind of thinking that either uh, either you or William offended them because sure shit couldn't have been me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> so how are you? I am exquisite. You know, I just had my 30th uh, high school reunion the other night. Oh, yeah, how'd that weird. go? It was really, really, really good. I got to connect with people. No one recognized me because, you know, I used to have hair and now I don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you had that long asshole hair and uh-huh. now you're bald. That, that's that, that, that's hysterical, those of, you, those of us that knew you back then. One of my nicknames was Hairball. <laughs> I can see that. Mm-hmm. So you had a good time? Yeah, yeah, pretty good time. Good. Any reconnections with any old friends you haven't talked to in forever? Well, I mean, I, I hung out with Angela for most of the evening. She was my yeah. best friend in high school. Uh, speaking of which, to give a shameless plug, she's opened up a, uh, a crystal rock shop. Oh, over cool. in Polly called the Crystal House Rocks. So if you guys are out there... Definitely check it out. She, you know, little tumble rocks. Everybody's selling that stuff for like ten bucks a piece now. They're sure. doing them for like two dollars, and they've got like two hundred of them. So that's nice. Yeah. And that's in that's in Polly. Yeah, it's in Polly. It's right right across the street from um, Texas Wesleyan. Do you have an address? I do not, <laughs> because I'm a moron. That's but I'll right. get it. There we go. Yeah, at least we we gave the name of the shop. And, yes, Crystal you know, House Rocks. I'm sure people can uh, can can Google it too. I guess what we probably should have done had we been smarter yeah, people yeah, than yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know. Well, great to hear. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I think you've got a nerdery topic for us today, and I've got a murdery topic, of yes. course. Yes, yes. So uh, if you want to get started with it, I'll t- turn the show over to you. Why, thank you. First off, I want to give a shout-out, of course, to Dr. Rod Evil. 
And uh, and a Hopi because uh, Hope asks us to do these specifically. So oh, shout yeah. out to our listener Hope. Uh, we, today we are covering Star Trek: The Original Series. Well, she asked us asked us to do it specifically because we did the Star Trek episode where yeah. we kind of covered from start to finish. Yes. And, Tailed around a little bit and talked yeah. about talked about stuff, but she did. Uh, she was the one that requested that we do an episode dedicated singly to the original series and Next Gen and DS Nine and all that. So yes, I'm going to do these sequentially. So the next one after this will eventually be the the animated series. Will be the next one I do. So so there you go, Hope. This right is on. for you. Shout out to Hope. Okay, so Star Trek for the uninitiated is an American science fiction television series created by Gene Roddenberry that follows the adventures of the starship USS Enterprise NCC-1701. Uh, and its crew, it later acquired the retronym Star Trek The Original Series to distinguish it from the other series. Right. So most people just say TOS now, and we all kind of understand sure. what it means. Um, it is set roughly during the 2260s. Uh, the ship and crew are led by Captain James T. Kirk, William Shatner, um, uh, first officer and science who, officer who apparently has only done two good things in his entire yeah, career, yeah. according to Doctor Rod. I think he's talking about the door noises. He didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, that's that. that he's, attri- he's attributed the door noises to him, and then of course, no one gets over Macho Grande <laughs> from Airplane Two. Airplane Two. I'll never get over Macho Grande. Uh, first officer uh, Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy. And Chief Medical Officer Leonard H. Bones McCoy, uh, played by DeForest Kelly. Shatner's voiceover introduced during each episode's opening credits uh, stated the Starship's mission. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. And then you get this noise. Which was apparently done. I thought that was someone singing. It, that was a theremin. It was a theremin, yeah. yeah it was not a voice, but no. it was really, really cool. I want a theremin. Yes, because of that. That's <laughs> yes, all I would ever that's play. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to play Star Trek. <laughs> so, it was released by Norway Productions and Desilu Productions. Uh, produced a series from September 1966 to December 1967. Now, they turned it over to Paramount Television. Uh, on January 68, and they ran until June 69. And I think it's because Paramount Television bought out Desilu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, they brought the show to Lucille Ball, and she greenlit it. She's like, "Oh, that sounds great!" Right? Yeah, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna have a, a a female first officer, and and you know, other women on the bridge. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that's what they said in that uh, that episode I listened to of the History Chicks over Lucille Ball. That she was very mm-hmm. instrumental in getting that on TV. Yeah, yeah. If it hadn't been for her, it wouldn't have happened. Right. Because everybody else kind of turned it down. Um, well, did, and they turned it down because alien, alien first officer, uh-huh. female or, or alien science officer, alien on the ship, female science officer. Uh-huh. Uh, they they were just like, uh, no, that's not going to work. That's, yeah, that's this not going to fly. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it aired on NBC from September eighth, nineteen sixty six, to June third, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, it was First broadcast on September 6, 1966 on Canada's CTV network. So Canada was, you know, just a little bit behind us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek's Nielsen ratings were, uh, while on NBC, were low. And the network canceled it after three seasons of 79 episodes. Now, several years later, the series became a hit in broadcast syndication. That's where most people picked it up. Right. Because these little stations would play it for 
years. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I remember Channel 39 played it twice a day for most of my childhood. Yeah. Star Trek eventually spawned a franchise that consist- consisted of, uh, as of now, 10 television series uh, right. that's either currently in production or have episodes that have, have released. 13 feature films and numerous books, games, toys. It's now widely considered one of the most popular and influential television uh, series of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the series contains significant elements of space western. It really captivated a general audience altogether. I mean, yes, a lot of space nerds like it, but a lot of people really, really dug Star Trek, especially once it got into syndication. And I think that's where it. I think that's where it lived best. I mean, I think that's why they did TNG in syndication first. I mean, it's possible. I mean, it. it it was originally just the quote unquote nerds and geeks that were mm-hmm. they were trekkies and yeah. and they were they were shunned they were made fun of yeah. but but it was a very loyal oh, following yeah. for Star Trek yeah. extremely loyal yeah um, a lot of advanced degrees in the fandom oh for yeah, Star Trek yeah, as yeah, well. yeah 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 and. You know, people took to the show, go watch the movie Galaxy Quest, yeah. to really see how people took the show where they they mapped out what the interior would look like uh-huh. and tried to figure out the technology and were just so into the show, um, it, it, especially when you got to your, you know, the convention started going and everything. I mean, it became huge, huge. Yeah, yeah. Um- well, Roddenberry noted that a number of the influences on his, on his ideas uh, were like A.E. Van Vaught's Tales of the Space uh, Spaceship Space Beagle, which is really, really great, especially for, you know, a bunch of unusual aliens are in that uh, Tales of the Spaceship mm-hmm. Space Beagle, um, which ended up getting into Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. Um, if you're not... If you're interested in what aliens look like, the, a guy named Wayne Barlow went out and, and found a lot of this information mm-hmm. and, and and made these anatomically correct it's great, drawings. It's a great book. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it I is, used to have it. Yeah, I, I've got a copy of it somewhere. It's it's pretty nerdy, folks, but it's really oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. He also took some stuff from Russell, uh, uh, Eric Frank Russell's Marathon series. And the film Forbidden Planet was also pretty big, uh, especially in the the pilot episode. Uh, yeah, their uniforms are taken almost directly from the uniforms in Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. And there's also par- parallel with uh, Rocky Jones, Space Ranger from 1954, and a lot of the elements that were integral to Star Trek, like the organization and the crew relationships, uh, missions being you know, and the bridge layout, and some of the technology go back to that. But that stuff's hard to find. Because very little of it ever got kinescoped. It was basically shot live and went out. There, there are a few episodes, but it's they're pretty low quality. But if right. you get a chance to to check it out, if you guys are interested, you got to at least give it you know a five ten minute pass just to kind of see what they were what they were dealing with. Really low budget too. But you know it was nineteen fifty four live television. So uh, he also uh, drew heavily from C S uh, Forrester's Horatio Hornblower novels. Uh, you know with the daring sea captain. Um, he's, he viewed Captain Kirk as Horatio Hornblower in space. And he, Roddenberry also wrote a bunch of stuff for Old West series and cop shows before this. So he kind of drew a lot of the stuff from, you know, like wagon train series and things like that. So he could sort of, that's how he, he sold the show as wagon train to the stars. 
Um, cause you know, the, these wagon trains would go out and they would deal with another episode, a different antagonist every week because it was a journey, you know, it was a, a road show as it were. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's kind of the idea they went with. Um, they were all going to be self-contained adventure stories about this continuing voyage through space. Um, and uh, notable exceptions, uh, most of the stuff was like that. They, they didn't really serialize until they got to Deep Space Nine or Discovery or Picard or the third season of Enterprise later on. Oh, sure. You could watch an individual uh, original series episode, and uh-huh. it, there's uh, un- unless it was a two-parter, yeah. it, one episode didn't tie into the next. No. Um, you didn't, you know, you had your core crew, mm-hmm. but then others would just kind of come and go, which of course we had the red shirts. Red shirts. <laughs> you know, there was one actor that was a red shirt, uh, in like a dozen different episodes. He is the most killed man in Star Trek. That's funny. Well, and, you know, that, and, and, and back for the original series, how it went is if you suddenly had a red shirt crew member mm-hmm. in a landing party uh-huh. that you've never seen before. You ain't going to see him again. He's dying. Yeah, he's he'll, he'll he's going to get killed before the second commercial. Right. Um, so it, 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 the red shirts, you know, that even spawned the, the card game, red, red shirts, shirt. which was hysterical. It's all about killing off your yeah. red shirts. Well, you know, that's the new, uh, that's the new Schrodinger's cat conundrum. If you have a group of stormtroopers and a group of red shirts, do the red shirts actually die? Because <laughs> the stormtroopers can't hit anything. So I, I'm curious, and I, and I wish I'd asked this before, because I, I don't know if you, if you researched or not. How did they, how did Shatner end up with this role? How did Nimoy end up with uh, this role? Okay, I, I've got I've got some of that here. Okay, uh, I've got 19 pages on this. So, okay. uh, so Roddenberry's original concept: the protagonist was Cabert, Captain Robert April of the starship SS Yorktown, because I think Roddenberry was a pilot on the Yorktown in the Second World War. Okay, um, the character developed into uh, Captain Christopher Pike, who was originally played by Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, April is listed in the Star Trek chronology as the uh, Enterprise's first commanding officer. Now, Pike was originally in the uh, the pilot, the, which you can see on uh, Paramount if you, right. if you go and see it. And it's they've cleaned it up. It's really pretty. Mm-hmm. And he also appears, I think, in the animated series, too, the Counterclock Incident. Uh, but he presented that first draft to Desilu Productions. Uh, and he met with Herbert Solo and De- Desilu's director of production. Solo saw promise in the idea and signed a three-year program development contract with Roddenberry. And this is where Lucille Ball was not terribly familiar with the nature of the project, pro- project but she did like the idea of, you know, strong female characters. So, And they, they revised it quite a bit for the cage, but he wanted to make... He wanted to make the captain as a, a very cerebral, deep-thinking person, and and you know everybody else's action man. And when they screened it for uh, for CBS, it wasn't it wasn't the Desi Lou people that that in the screening party that were down on it that, that didn't care for it. It was the CBS people, or I'm sorry, the NBC oh, people. Uh, okay, thank you. That yeah, I, yeah. Paramount CBS. Right. Because now they are yeah. right. Now they own them. But it actually, yeah, it aired on uh, NBC because he took it to CBS at first and they were like, nope, not understood. They worked uh, in 64. Solo had uh, had worked with Grant Tinker, who was head of the network's West Coast programming department. Grant Tinker eventually became head of NBC. Uh, David Letterman used to have him on his show back when he still had the NBC show. Mm. Uh, and Grant Tinker would give out like $10 bills to the people in the audience. <laughs> um. But yeah, they commissioned that first pilot, the cage, and and they had the executives sit down with their uh, 
with their significant others and they watched it. And, and that's when they, they made the, uh, uh, the notes that no one would believe the, the female first officer and they didn't like the alien, but, uh, Roddenberry's idea was, look, it needs to show that human beings are more culturally diverse. So the alien had to stay, but he took the, the female officer and turned that character basically into a nurse. That's who Norse Chapel was. This played the same actress who was Gene Roddenberry's eventual wife, um, Majel Barrett. Mm-hmm. Um, and he brought in Ohura as the communications officer because he thought it was really important to have a diverse cast because by the 2260s, we're going to get over, you know, hating on each other because we, we've got other things out in the galaxy to look well, at. Well, that was Roddenberry's vision is, yeah. is basically – on planet Earth, the nations have all now banded together, and it's one united federation of planets. And the you know war is over, famine is over, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be a relatively peaceful society. Yeah. I mean, granted, you know, there's still conflict or whatnot. Yeah. But Roddenberry's whole thing was there's not going to be conflict on this ship. No. Specifically with people. Yeah. Um, it's supposed to be very much a a a peaceful. Yeah. Human, uh, you, yeah. you know, ship of humans yeah. out exploring. Yeah, humans and a few aliens. And right. I think he wanted to have more aliens on, but there were cost restraints. You know, Leonard Nimoy's makeup was it wasn't it wasn't thick. Of course, he had the ears, mm-hmm. which which they use the same appliance over and over again. And I think they actually painted him yellow because with the television lights, he looked green. Which right. was the whole point because Vulcans have very, green, very pale, yeah, right. green blood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it did. It gave him a nice green undertone, which was really, really smart. Uh, so anyway, NBC made the unusual de- uh, decision to pay for a second pilot, um, in a script called "Where No Man Has Gone Before," and only the character of Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy, was retained for the first pilot. And again, only the two cast members, Major Barrett and Nimoy, were carried forward in the series. Uh, the second pilot provide, proved to be satisfactory to NBC, and the network selected Star Trek to be in its upcoming television schedule for the fall of 1966. Now, the second pilot um, was actually used as an episode as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's like the third episode that they broadcast, but the uniforms are different, so it's kind of an abrupt. It's it's kind of abrupt because the first episode, uh, uh, the. They have a different, they have a different uniform. And in the third episode, it's, you know, and then they go back to the, the uniform that we think of as being Star Trek by the fourth episode. So it is kind of an abrupt change if you watch them sequentially as they were broadcast. Is that the, the, the kind of different greenish yellow tunic that Kirk would wear? They were like almost like an Agora sweater. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then they used, a, I think they used different guns too. The guns were far more forbidden planet looking. Hmm. But yeah, again, they used, because they spent the money on the pilot, they thought, well, we'll just use that as episode three. And the second pilot introduced Captain Kirk. And so the, the idea at this point was that, so we can't have a cerebral captain. They want something a little more action oriented. So right. they made that the captain action oriented and kind of, you know, Jumping ahead, and of course they got Bill Shatner, this this Canadian actor who, okay, he is Shakespearean trained, and back then mm-hmm. you were supposed to drop those pauses and let you know let the drama lie or or hold for laughs. 
he brought that to Captain Kirk. And I, a lot of people give him a lot of grief for that. But to me, I think the character of Captain Kirk kind of needs that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm. Well, I mean, that's become Captain Kirk. That's, Bones! Right. That's very much become Captain Kirk. I, honestly, and... I mean, you could tell me something different that maybe I'll remember, but the only thing I remember him in before Star Trek was Twilight Zone. Yeah, a couple episodes of Twilight Zone. I think he did a few episodes of um, Mission Impossible, which Leonard Nimoy did way more episodes of Mission Impossible than than Shatner did. Sure. I I remember Leonard Nimoy in Mission Impossible. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I think that's it. He was basically a bit player. You know, he did a couple of Twilight Zone episodes and... Some Mission Impossible episodes, and this was his first real big break. Okay, so he wasn't in a lot of major things before. No. Okay. No, absolutely That's not. That's what I was curious no, about. No, every, everybody else around him had had way, done way more work than he had done. You know, I think including uh, George Takai and Michelle Nichols. They'd all done other things. Hmm. And his his was kind of small, but he was a, he was a theater guy from Toronto. So, um, matter of fact, his understudy when he was— in the Shakespearean company, I believe it was of Toronto. Uh, it was Christopher Plummer, and eventually the two of them got back together for One of the Undiscovered movies. Country. Was it? Yeah, was Undiscovered it, was country. it Undiscovered Country? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six. Yeah, it was number General six. General Krang or Chang. Chang. Yeah, Chang. Yeah. And no offense, but Christopher Plummer kind of wiped the floor with him from an acting standpoint in that. Offending me. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 most people, when they think of Shatner, they don't think of a strong actor. Yeah, I, I think he's. I think he's a lot better than people give him credit for. I don't think he was nearly as good as as Nimoy was because Nimoy uh, Nimoy took that introspective shot as the Vulcan and just made that his own. He inhabited that role. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. I just. Oh, I love him in in especially some of the early episodes the looks he will give Shatner and Shatner and Nimoy were friends, uh, you know, Nimoy being from Boston. Um, so they, they weren't that far apart, you know, space wise, even though Shatner's Canadian. Um, but yeah, they kind of grew up in similar circumstances. So they were, they were pretty tight as friends, but you know, the idea was that, that the spot character could be the introspective one. Cause Roddenberry wanted to keep that idea, the, the idea of, hey, you're, you're out there exploring space, you're, you're meeting new civilizations, you're basically representing us as a species. You, there needs to be some introspection about that. To his credit, I mean, they wanted to cast the captain as an action man. Shatner brought some of that, uh, but no, that was really Nimoy doing all the, the hey, hey, we need, we need to look at this this way. Yeah, and... and and that's Spock. I yeah. mean, that's how that's how how the how the relationship really worked. Is he was the very logical, you know, heavy thinker. Yeah. Well, and they, you know, they invented a whole the whole Vulcan I- identity because in, if you watch the pilot, Spock laughs. And, oh yeah, he smiles. Oh, a- yeah. absolutely. That's, he gets scared, and that's you know, I, I I just wonder back then the whatever fan base they had when they when they finally got to where they showed that pilot within oh. an episode. Yeah. And you saw Spock smiling. Well they cut I just out the, what they I thought. think they cut out some of the smiling stuff in the in in that one episode. Okay, because when I saw the episode the first time, huh? uh, they still had the smiling in they there. And it was it there. was jarring. It yeah. was it was very jarring as as someone who watched the show. Yeah. Yeah, well if you go back and 
heck, you couldn't even see the cage up until I think the first episode of Next Gen mm-hmm. was the first time they actually showed the cage to general, by itself. Yeah, gotcha. To the general public, and, and it, it and people loved it. Yeah, they really blew a lot of people away. Uh, so originally, okay, so the the doctor was played by uh, Paul Fix for that second pilot. Uh, he played Doctor Mark Pipe. Piper, and you you only see him in that where no man has gone before episode. Um, and then the doctor was taken over by DeForest Kelly, played you know Bones McCoy, who was boy talk about talk about a guy who could who could say a line and let it drop and just sit there and and <laughs> work it with his his one raised eyebrow. DeForest Kelly really really did that. I love DeForest Kelly. Yeah, and you know he did mostly westerns. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I knew him. I, I I knew him from several westerns. Yeah, and he he remained as you know he achieved billing. You know the three of them were the top billing stars. But I I kind of like to get into a little bit more of of, of the secondary characters like uh, Sulu mm-hmm. and uh, Uhura, played mm-hmm. by George Takai, who is basically the face of the franchise now. Well, Sulu was George Takai, not Uhura. Yes, Uhura <laughs> was played by uh, Nichelle Nichols. She was actually thinking about quitting and she was, she tells the story a lot. She was basically in a hallway. She's like, you know, I'm thinking about quitting. And she turned around and Martin Luther King was standing behind her and she's, and he's, he was, he was gushing over the series. And she said, Hey, I think I'm going to quit. I, you know, there's another Broadway wants to pay me, you know, an exorbitant amount of money to do this show. And Dr. King said, no. You can't quit. Don't you understand? You are representing us on television as a competent uh, member of this crew. Because up until that point, that didn't happen on television. Now, after that, you get I Spy and things like that where you, where, you know, the the, the African-American people are treated as equals. Right. But up until Star Trek, that didn't happen. Um, so yeah, it was Dr. King himself who told her that's that wild. and that's why she stayed on. Wow. And, and she's glad she did, uh, particularly as an African-American woman, it's a prominent, a prominent, uh, feature. Now they also had a, the Captain Yeoman was played, uh, Janice Rand, uh, Captain Yeoman, Janice Rand placed by, played by Grace Lee Whitley. Uh, she, she departed midway through the first season. Uh, and then of course they brought in Christine Chapel. Uh, mm-hmm. Nurse Chapel, played by Major Barrett. Major Barrett, yep. Yeah. Now Janice Rand, though, she kept showing up in the movies. You would, they would always pan over to her, and she'd be sitting at a console working. Yeah, so I'll. Kept, I, I actually never forget. I, I don't know why. Why I still remember this, but I remember. Um, I think it was. I think it was the search for Spock. Uh huh. When the ship comes home, and Janice Rand is standing there watching as the ship goes watching by. The ship goes by. Yeah. And, and I and, and I guess Keith and I must have seen it at the theater or something. But but I remember Keith going, "What you doing there, Janice Rand? <laughs> <laughs> what you doing there, Janice Rand?" Uh, okay, so halfway through the uh, no, in the second season, they were joined by Ensign Pavel Chekhov, Chekhov played by Walter Koenig. Mm-hmm. Now Walter Koenig is is a uh, uh, the son of Russian immigrants, but so he basically impersonated his dad mm-hmm. <laughs> as the voice. Um, but the whole idea of that was, you know, the, the tensions were really high with the Soviet Union and, and Roddenberry wanted to show, Hey, at this point there, you know, that's, that's a thing of the past. We, we all work together. Although they did keep making joy jokes that uh, 
Chekhov thought everything in the world was invented by Russians. <laughs> oh, yes, it was invented by a Russian. Shakespeare was a Russian. Uh, now, the series picked up uh, by NBC. And the production was removed from Desilu Studios, Gower Street location, and the main studio complex. Uh, they moved it from what used to be the RKO Pictures lot to the Paramount Pictures lot. And a lot of the... A lot of the street scenes that we see in, on the planets, especially where they go to the places that, that look like old Earth or, you know, City on the Edge of Forever, where mm-hmm. they go to old Earth, that was on the Paramount back right. lot. So a lot right. of that stuff was filmed there. The stuff in the Jeffries tubes was uh, – they used that, it, that same equipment for a bunch of uh, – Star Wars stuff later on. A lot of people don't know that. They use that Jeffrey's tube where he climbs up in it. That's used in Star Wars quite a bit when they, they did some work. ILM did some work, you know, running things down tunnels and things. Those are the original Star Wars, Star Trek Jeffrey's tubes. Well, and, and you know, and, and as you talk about being on the lot and everything like that, um, at one point, Universal Studios Hollywood had the, had the Star Trek experience. Mm-hmm. And I I got picked out of the out of the crowd to to be one of the actors. Quote oh, nice! And so well, they picked the right guy. I, yeah, yeah. I, I I was super super excited. And what they did, we 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 went into costume and we put on uh, Starfleet uniforms. And the first thing they had us do is we came out on stage. And the the narrator or whatever was saying, you know, here's our crew. They're about to embark on their away mission. Wave goodbye, crew. And so we step on these discs and we wave goodbye to the audience. And then there's a light above us. And suddenly the audience was going bananas. <laughs> and then the, and then the, 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 the stage, the stage hand or stage crew, whatever they're like, okay, come on, follow us now. And we, left the stage. And I mean, and, and the audience was, they it were actually looked crazy. like you guys transported someplace. Well, and that's what we find out later because we get to watch everything afterwards. Oh, nice. And so it showed us that, yeah, we were up on stage and the light came down and we beamed off. The next thing we, that we got to do is we were on a planet and then they had other people they picked out of the crowd that were Klingons and they had this giant, tentacled monster that people were, you know, they, they were waving back and forth from, from up top. And we had these giant rubber rocks that we were throwing at each other. And then we got to kill the Klingons. I know. I love that sound. So it was, it was, it was a whole lot of fun. Along the way, I, I have lost the videotape of that thing. Cause I really wish, I wish, wish I still have it, but it was, it was that kind of thing. It was rubber rocks and it was, you know, foam, tentacles coming down from the sea league and it was nice it was star trek sets so it was fun i love it i love it yeah, it makes you want to go to the vasquez rocks <laughs> right uh, also in bill and ted yes uh so yeah that the reason they call the jeffries tubes jeffrey tubes is because of john jeffries he was actually the the designer of a lot of the bridge elements and the phasers and things like that um so you know they're still using his name today um because they're all Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey's tubes, and uh, the bridge layout they kind of they kind of laid it out like a, like a functioning aircraft carrier. The mm-hmm. whole idea was. Now the costume designer uh, Bill Thies created the striking look of the Starfleet uniforms, the you know the colored tunics, uh, and he also designed the stuff for the Klingons, the Vulcans, the Romulans, the Tellarites, the Andorians, the Gideonites, and artist and sculptor Wa Chang, who was working for Walt Disney. Uh, Designed and manufactured the props 
like the flip open communicators and things like that. The tricorders. Um, some of these designs have, have crept their way into modern society. I mean, everybody had a flip phone for a while. The sure. flip phone is directly, is a communicator. Well, they you still, can still buy one. Well, and the, and Samsung's got a really big deal with flip phones. First, they've got the, they've got the Samsung flip mm-hmm. and then they've got the Samsung fold like Chelsea has, which it, it folds and you it open it up half. and it's, it's, I mean, it's like a little tablet. It's yeah. so yeah, that's still big. Hey, go back real quick. Cause you were talking about things that things that are named after people in the show. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, and and we we've joked about this for so many years is one of the reasons, one of the reasons they, they, that they, and if I'm getting this wrong, please correct me. The reason that transporters can't work is because of the Heisenberg principle. And the reason transporters do work in Star Trek is because they have a Heisenberg, Heisenberg compensator, compensator, baby, <laughs> which they've never really explained. Yeah. It ba- it's basically just this device that makes the Heisenberg principle go away. Yeah, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is where you can't you can't you can't predict where a special. Oh my God! I think it's a a quark is going to be at any given right. time. And so they have the Heisenberg yes. compensator. I could tell you where Quark's going to be. He's going to be behind the bar. Bum bum. <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. That's another episode. <laughs> so yeah, they. Uh, so I love Lucy. Sold it to Paramount because she was only making the Lucy show at that time and Star Trek, and it was getting expensive. So they moved it over to Paramount for the second, the second season. The first regular episode of Star Trek was the Man Trap, which had the salt vampire, which appeared differently to everyone, which. Red Dwarf has made jokes about that for years. I mean, they're still making jo- the newest movie. They made a joke about it. Um, but oh my God, the design for the salt vampire, when they actually showed what it really looked like, mm-hmm. was terrifying. Even today, that's a beautiful, beautiful practical effect. Um, I know that kind of went with uh, the time machines, um, Morlock. Design from the mm-hmm. 1960 time machine. Right. Some of the facial features are very similar to that, but oh my God, that, that, that salt vampire was just incredible. And uh, their first episode that they aired was 33rd out of 94 programs, which was not bad. And today, those would be killer numbers. Sure. Uh, I think they, uh, two weeks after that, they ranked 51st, and that's basically where they sat for most of the rest of the series. But again, in today's numbers, yeah, they would have gotten 10 seasons. And uh, they were going to cancel it after the second season, but because of Bijou Trimble Trimble, and her letter-writing campaign and her husband, John Trimble, uh, they started this letter-writing and basically inundated NBC's offices with all this mail. It ended up being 116,000 letters telling them, do not cancel Star Trek. So they gave it a third season. Yeah, I, I I remember hearing about that letter writing campaign. Well, a lot of people said it's the best science fiction show that has ever been on television up to that point. Okay, all right. Uh, they were uh, MIT. They had Vulcan power and other stuff set up. You know, these little cards and they wore little name tags that said Vulcan power and things like that. NBC had never seen anything like that, so they uh, they ended up moving the show's third season uh, to a different time slot, which eventually kind of killed it on 10 p.m. on Friday nights. Uh, and it went up against Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. God, everything they put on Friday nights used to be death. Yeah. That, 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 was, that was the death knell of a show, is it yeah. got moved to Friday nights. And yeah. 
And, and Roddenberry was complaining the network wanted to kill them. And they reduced the the amount of money they had mm-hmm. for the third season. And I think Roddenberry kind of took a step back after the, uh, you know, when they started doing the third season. He was still, you know, an executive producer, but it, he he took a step back. And, and, and a lot of people think that the reason the third series suffered so much, uh, because they're not the best episodes. Uh, the best episodes are really in the first and second season. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some good ones, but... Uh, you know, like Spock's brain. Spock's brain is generally considered the uh, the worst episode that they produced. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. That's not the greatest. It, it was a great. It was, I still don't think it's bad. I mean, I would no, rather no, no, watch no. that than than an episode of Peyton Place. Yeah, no, I don't like think. I, I, me personally, I don't think any of them are bad per se. But yeah, I I, I can see Spock's brain in a list of yeah. definitely not the best. Now, Star Trek at 79 episodes, they got enough, uh, even though they didn't go a full four seasons, uh, were, uh, there were enough episodes for what they called daily stripping. And Kaiser Broadcast purchased the syndication rights for Star Trek for the first, first three seasons and started putting them out on television stations everywhere mm-hmm. in 1970. I mean, they, they just started showing. And that's, again, that's where this show lived. Uh, in some cases, like in WPIX in New York City, their ratings were better than some of the network stuff in the time slots that they were given. And generally, it was 6 o'clock at night. Sure. And look, here it was 6 o'clock and then again at 10 o'clock. And 10 o'clock at night, people would watch some of the news and then switch over to Channel 39 and watch Star Trek. Right. And and that's what we did at my house. Star Trek found a very large audience and attracted uh, many new viewers uh, in the 70s. Um, and in 1972, they had the first Star Trek convention. And that's the one where I talked about before, where George Takai basically showed up in 1972. And he was, he, he, they paid him a few hundred bucks to show up and he needed the money. So he mm. was like, I'm going to go glad hand a couple of fans, you know. And there were 1,200 people there. Right. And they were expecting 200. Mm-hmm. And he's been doing them ever since. I think he's finally retired from it uh, just in the last year or so. But Yeah, uh, I think he's, I, I think he's. Well, he's getting pretty on much up there, retired yeah. from Hollywood. I mean, yeah. he does a few thing, a yeah. bit, a bit part here and there. I mean, he did a bit part on Big Bang Theory, at least two yeah. uh, episodes of that. But oh, yeah. and yeah, well, I think just a week or two ago, he was filmed. They, somebody has got a, a full set in some little special place. I want to say it's in New York, and he showed up to that place and just sat on the set in his chair and waited for people to walk by. Oh, that's funny. And it was pointing in the uniform, in the gold. You know what? Next time, next time I'm at my mom's, I'm going to have to go through the photo albums. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact there is a photo of us at Universal mm-hmm. around the captain's chair, and I oh, think nice. they had. You know, it might have been it, it might have been the Wax Museum, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but uh, but if I recall right, it's Spock in the chair. Oh, nice! I've, and I've got it. it I, I know that picture. I'll have to. I'll have okay. to find that. Yeah, if we can get that, I sure would like to load that up for this episode. I'll call my mom. Right, and <laughs> we could talk about some of the, the specific ep- episodes. City on the Edge of Forever is great. That's that was the most critically acclaimed yeah. one. Yeah, with a great Joan Collins. Yes, um, Spock's brain, not so much, but it's still it's it's good television, mm-hmm. even if it's the worst one in Star Trek. Right. Um, oh, Trouble with Tribbles. 
<laughs> with, with the Klingons, and you get a lot of you get a bar fight with Klingons, which mm-hmm. they re- re- reference back in uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine later on, where they get the same actor playing the Klingon who was posing as a human. Tribbles, Tribbles was a great episode. Uh, that was a great, uh, great Scotty episode. Yeah, uh, the great James Doohan. Yeah, you can. <laughs> well, yes, I, I try to defend your honor, Captain, but they called the they called the Enterprise garbage, and I couldn't take it. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the episode with Tremaine, yeah. uh, I always thought was a really good one. Uh, the Squire the, of Gothos, Squire of Gothos, uh, the one with the Gorn, uh, where he fought the Gorn on the, yeah. on the, on the, the, yeah, the Vasquez rocks. Yes. Thank you. Um, dun, dun, you know, I like, dun, dun, I like that dun, dun, one. Dun, dun. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't hate any of them. I mean, yeah. they're, they're. Special effects wise, not as yeah. good as you get. I mean, anybody that goes back and watches them now yeah. that has never seen them before, yeah. you're not going to get great special effects. For, gonna, yeah, but for the time, they were groundbreaking. I understand for yeah. the time they were. I'm saying anybody now that has never seen it yeah. and goes back and watches it, you're not going to get great special effects. Not yeah. compared to today's, um, you know, the sets and the and the sounds and everything like that. Uh, plus the fact that, and we we talked about this in the in the original Star Trek episode. The technology that they had on the original Enterprise mm-hmm. is <laughs> looks like a previous technology to some of the episodes yeah. that they come out or to the series that come out later that actually predate yes. Enterprise. So you know that, that that's where it kind of it it has a hard time holding up because as we have moved on with special effects and technology, we're able to make shows that. Uh, that 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 just far surpassed yeah. what was there because you know just like uh, just like old Doctor Rod said at the very beginning you know the doors shh, shh, <laughs> shh. oh you know what he's right because uh, William Shatner did that in Airplane Two oh yeah that's where he did that that's shh. where his line was shh, shh. Uh, so you had the shushing doors yes Major Barrett is the computer. Yeah. Um it is you know the 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 original the original Star Trek is is near and dear to very very yeah. many people. Yeah, yeah. Um Trek- they they Trek- have gone back and cleaned a lot of the episodes up and, and increased the special effects a little bit. No, oh, yeah. Yeah. But Trekkies and Trekkers alike. Yeah. Um there it's just it it was a it was a fun series and you're absolutely correct it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um Star Trek easily paved the way for later science fiction, even though, you know, a lot of people, you know, it was kind of a joke to a lot of people and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I mean, who knows what, what science fiction we would have had had Star Trek not come yeah. on the air. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you. Thank you, Lucille Ball for, for yes. bringing that gem to us. Um, thank and, you. Thank you, Gene Roddenberry and his son who's carrying on the tradition, Rod Roddenberry as well. Yeah. 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 Gene, Gene Roddenberry is, uh, you know, is to me one of just, uh, someone who, who I just always had massive, massive respect for because, Mm -hmm. because he did, I think he brought a great idea of a universe. Um, his, his, his vision was, uh, way before his time. And, and and I appreciate it. No one goes hungry and everybody knows how to read. Yeah. 
I, I appreciate the vision he gave first and appreciate everything that we got mm-hmm. from Star Trek. So, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I love the, I love the original series to this day. Mm-hmm. And, and I would recommend anybody who watches any of the Star Trek today, yeah. go back and watch, see oh, where it definitely. began. Yeah. 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 Well, and even though the effects aren't great, I want to say the visuals in the series, the way it was shot with the bright colors and the, and the, and the angles and the lighting, um, and the incidental music is so good. I mean, a lot of people make fun of it, but dude, the, the fight scene, the, da, 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 that's really good stuff. I don't care who you are. That's good stuff. Yeah, no, I think it's silly to this day. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'll disagree with you. I don't, I don't think it's the greatest. It, it, it is a joke today and it's silly, but it's still, it's, it's Star Trek and it's fun. Yes. Yes, it is. And that's basically it for TOS. I hope we covered it Great. enough there, Hopi. No, I've, I appreciate that. I'm 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 happy to cover those individual episodes. Uh, a whole lot of fun. Uh, can't wait for the next one, which I think you said is going to be the animated the animated series, series. yeah, uh, which was original the original series animated. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, cut down to half hour episodes. Yeah. So look forward to that. Cool. Sweet. Well, then I'm going to step over onto the murdery side. Murder. So for my uh, my part of the show today, I got my information off of True Crime Daily Crime Watch, uh, the FBI website, Wikipedia, uh, Dateline, uh, episode called The Fugitive, the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, FBI Phoenix Division website, uh Desiree News, I guess that's how that's pronounced. It's D-E-S-E-R-E-T, Desiree. Uh, Internet Archive Wayback Machine, I love them. America's Most Wanted Report. And finally, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Jamie, who asked for this topic. Uh, So this is going to be the story of Jason Derrick Brown. Okay. Um, On November 29th, 2004, at approximately 10 uh, 10 o'clock a.m., uh, Robert Keith Palomares, a 24-year-old armored car guard, uh, was carrying the weekly deposits uh, outside the AMC, AMC Theater at 4915 East Ray Road in Phoenix, Arizona at the Ahwatukee Mall. Okay. Um, at, at the time in 2004, this was considered a very, very low crime rate in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, Robert Palomares was the bag man on an armored car team. So he was the one that would go inside. Uh, his job was to pick up money from businesses along mm-hmm. the route. They normally had about 30 and 60 stops per day. Right on. And with those locking bags and. Correct. Yeah. Correct. With the um, packs in them. Robert's brother, Derek, uh, Palomares said on crime watch that Robert was a well-trained and focused professional. Um, suddenly a hood, a hooded gunman dressed entirely in black ambushed and shot Robert with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Robert had no time to defend himself. Oh, wow. Uh, the gunman first, uh, fired, fired three shots to Robert's head. And then when Robert went down, the gunman shot him twice more in the head. Wow. With a 45. Uh huh. Wow. The gunman took the money bag, which contained 56000 in cash, ran into a nearby alley, and then fled the scene on a bicycle. Okay. Uh, Robert's partner followed procedures and stayed in the truck, calling 911. That's, yeah. you, you, you don't jump out when there's been, been an attack. Yeah. 
Robert was transported to the Good Samaritan Hospital where he was pronounced dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, Witnesses initially described the shooter as being anywhere from 25 to 30 years old and Hispanic. However, uh, the bicycle was recovered in a bush not far away and police got DNA and fingerprints off the bicycle, leading them to their prime suspect, James Derek Brown. Okay. Uh, police did state that had they not found the bike, Jason would have most likely gotten away with it. Oh, wow. Uh, because they did get DNA and fingerprints off the bike. Okay. Um, so, so I, I watched a, the, the crime watch video on this. I have to say, I, I love the sensationalism in this show. Uh, they gave several mock-ups, uh, facial mock-ups saying it could look like this or look like this, but there is no disguise for evil. <laughs> <laughs> no disguise for evil. Um, so J- D- Jason Derrick Brown, uh, was born on July 1st, 1969, Los Angeles, California. Okay. Uh, he grew up in a Mormon family, uh, did his missionary work in France from 1988 to 1990. Uh, Jason, however, would leave the church because he, he kind of wanted to live a fast lifestyle. Apparently. Um, well, and you know, he, he, he looked like your stereotypical surfer dude. You'll, you'll see it in the pictures that I put on the website. Um, you know, he used, he had his surfer dude looks and the attitude and he began living the party lifestyle instead of the quieter one from what he knew from church life. Okay. He owned two businesses, uh, toys unlimited and on the door on the doorstep advertising, which he ran out of his home in Salt Lake, Utah. Uh, he had been employed as a toy salesman and golf equipment importer so he could support his luxurious lifestyle and his expensive tastes. Uh, he made sure to get all the things that th- that would make him show that he lived life large. He had a, a convertible BMW, a Cadillac SUV, boats, plural, and ATVs, plural. You know, so I mean, he's just he's he's looking like he's the he's the big shot, right? Boats in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Where do they put them? Shit, I don't know. I don't know geography. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lake somewhere. Well, they're a great Salt Lake. Well, there you go. You, I didn't think you put boats in that because the salt would tear them up. I have no idea. I mean, you know, there's you can go down into Arizona. You That's can true. Go That's into true. California. Yeah, yeah, it's right. You know, there. there's there's places to go. Um, however, none of these items did he own fully. He, they were oh. they were not fully bought, and they were all from bank fraud. He would sign his signature for the items, but never pay for them. Oh, uh, police believe that Jason had operated a check and bank fraud scam for years in order to fund his image. Okay. Uh, Phoenix detective Paul Dalton uh, also stated that Jason may have been the perpetrator in a number in a number of unsolved petty thefts and home invasions. He said this was not his first rodeo. I'm going to be honest. How do you graduate from petty theft to cold blooded murder? Yeah. So he's insinuating that there may have been a murder before. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, he's pretty, it sounds like he was pretty methodical. I mean, he knew what he was doing when he, and he just, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I popped out and was like, pop, pop, pop. And I've got that in here too. Grab the bag, pop, pop. And then jump on a bicycle and leave. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Uh, Jason would also sometimes go to car dealerships, clean, clean shaven and well-dressed and he'd purchase a car using a fake social security number and address. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, and the cojones on this guy. Well, not only that. In in the two thousands, mm-hmm. yeah, nineteen eighty five, he could probably get away with that for quite a while. But yeah, two thousand, 
No. I sold cars in 94, 95, and I just I, I just don't see it. I, I just don't see how, yeah. how, how it happened. But anyway, um, according to police, Jason had never had a legitimate 40-hour-a-week uh, full-time job. He lived con-to-con and small job-to-small job. Right on. Uh, he portrayed portrayed himself as a wealthy man, but in 2004, he had defaulted in at least one large loan and had racked up tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Wow. Uh, Jason's neighbors thought uh, he was in the golf business and kind of all around a great guy. Yeah. Here, here's another one where he's just a really good guy. His neighbor, Michael Campbell, said, around the neighborhood, everybody had the same opinion about Jason. Man, very likable. Nothing wrong with him. You know everybody knew his job and, and what it related to, and, it's, <laughs> and it seemed very plausible. So everybody's like, hey, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Yeah, he sells golf, golf equipment <coughs> and toys. Right. Police believe that Jason snapped due to being under pressure from creditors looking to make him, uh, for, looking for him to take his stuff, and he he was sick of dodging him. So, you know, with, with this pressure being being in so much debt um, and trying to figure out a way out, Jason started to plan his heist. Uh huh. Um, this is where you talked about earlier. Sound very methodical. So he started researching and found out how much money movie theaters brought in on the Thanksgiving weekend. Um, he did begin telling others that he thought it would be a great, uh, that he thought it would be a great time. Uh, and that's when armored cars were going to have lots of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, police said that Jason brought this up in a way that his friends thought he was joking. They chalked yeah. it up to Jason being drunk or just talking about some of the effect of, Hey, have you ever thought about robbing an armored car? Yeah. You know, and, and at first I didn't understand this because I'm like, okay, he's just said that why didn't somebody, but We've had this conversation. Thank you. That's exactly what I've got here. It could have been a a part of an RPG that we were on and been discussing the ins and outs of how to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I could see this one. At first, I was just kind of like, hmm. But then, yeah, we we could have had these conversations around our table. Uh, Jason then went out and purchased a forty-five caliber Glock pistol. Uh, He also purchased high-velocity rounds that would do the most damage. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, the bullets found at the scene matched the exact uh, type of ammunition that Jason purchased. Uh, in November 20, 2004, Jason took a firearms instruction course at Totally Awesome Guns and Range in Salt Lake City. Totally Awesome Guns and Range. Um, the the owner said Jason pulled up to the store that day in a brand new BMW 3 Series mm-hmm. and was very persistent that he took a class that day. I got to take a class right now. Uh, he did pass a background check, and his fingerprints were sent off to state and federal authorities, hence why they had his fingerprints on the bicycle. Yep. Uh, Jason's instructor, Clark uh, Epotion, Epotion, uh described him as an, obnoxio- an obnoxious student and inexperienced with firearms. Uh, but by the end of the four-hour class, Jason had honed his accuracy to a small cluster on the targets, all hitting within about an inch and a half of the intended spot. Okay. The day before the murder, Jason practiced shooting and hit a man's vehicle with the same type of top-of-the-line bullets that killed the guard. He even left his name with the vehicle owner. So this kid's not that smart. No. Um, then he began, he began doing surveillance on the armored car as they did their rounds. Uh, police later found video and had witness reports of Jason in his own BMW watching the movie theater as well as receipts from restaurants that were inside of the movie theater. So he's casing it out. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, he definitely cased it out. He knew, he knew his route. He knew. Yeah. Well, he he apparently spent all of his time around there watching. Yeah. 
he then began living in a Stay America hotel that was near the movie theater. Okay. Um, after the shooting, uh, police did track Jason to the hotel, but he had already skipped town. Yeah. Uh, he was captured on surveillance tape, having a conversation with another man in the hotel lobby. Uh, police do consider the man to be a possible accomplice or witness. However, his identity remains unknown. Um, so after the shooting, Jason fled to Henderson, Nevada. He checked into a motel on November 29th. And the next morning, he made a $2,000 deposit into his personal bank account before he left for Las Vegas. He's leaving a paper trail. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, he, he did all this methodical planning, but then he... He didn't think past getting the money. He didn't think past getting the money. And this is what's, this is what's kind of maddening uh, as we go through this, because he planned it out what seemed very well. Yeah. And then he did a whole bunch of stupid steps. Yeah. But then, and so we'll... I'll kind of leave that. Uh, Once he was in Las Vegas, he swapped his BMW for a black Cadillac Escalade that he had in storage up there. Okay. He then drove to Orange County, California, where he began a series of short stays, like a day or two, with various friends and family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on December 1st at 4.35 p.m., Jason deposited $2,300 into his personal bank account at Wells Fargo Bank in Dana Point, California. Again, still leaving paper trails. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, an arrest warrant was issued for Jason on December 4th, 2004 for first degree murder and armed robbery. And then on December 6th, FBI agents arrived with arrest warrant in hand to Jason's sister's house, hoping to arrest him. But somehow a couple hours before they got there, he got word that there was a warrant issued from his arrest uh-huh. and he booked. Uh, he broke his phone, ripped the OnStar tracking out of the Escalade, threw some clothes in it, said goodbye to his sister and took Head off. Out. So now a new warrant got issued for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. They Uh issued on the same day. Uh, Jason then went south. He was tracked to a gas station where he used his credit card and then headed south towards the Mexican border. Uh, He then suddenly turned north and went back through California to Oregon. And it was here in Oregon that Jason became a ghost and went completely off grid. Wow. Uh, and, And this is where I say... He did all this methodical planning, and then he did all these paper trails. <laughs> that may have been part of the plan. You know I, what I mean? I, I, that I may have been part of the like, Hey, they're going to think I'm heading to Mexico. Now I'm going to well, go to Well, I'm sure it was, because, because he was heading towards Mexico, and suddenly turned north and, and went back through. But um, anyway, his his vehicle, the, 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 the Cadillac, was ultimately found in the Portland International Airport parking lot on January 16th, 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, police said there was nothing that they found that said Jason got on a plane. Okay. Uh, while in Portland, Jason did mail a package, uh, with a set of golf clubs, his laptop, one of his cell phones, and nearly all of his warm weather clothing to his older brother, David John Brown, the second of San Diego. Um, on April 20th, 2005, David was indicted for obstruction of justice. The indictment claimed David deep cleaned Jason's BMW in early December, uh, after having driven the vehicle to California from the Las Vegas storage facility. Okay. Uh, he, he was asked if he knew of any storage lockers that Jason had in Las Vegas, which he said no, and they were able to prove that that was a lie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, he did end up pleading guilty in 2007 to lying to the FBI and was sentenced to three years probation by a federal judge in Arizona. Ouch. Um, Jason has now been on the run for over 16 years. He hasn't been caught. He's still out there? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Jason is Sorry, that was one, really loud. No, that's fine. <laughs> Jason is one of three with Arizona ties on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. We've covered one. That was Robert William Fisher. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, no, he's, he's still on the run. And on December 8th, 2007, Jason was the 489th fugitive to be placed on the 10 most wanted list. Wow. Um, FBI say they receive between 800 and a thousand tips every year related to Jason all around the world. Uh, the lead FBI on the case, on the FBI agent on the case, Lance Leasing, uh, said within the, w- with the commonness of his name and how he looks like a surfer dude in California, we've had more tips about this fugitive than any other on America's most wanted. It caused us to chase all leads around the world. The majority of them have proved to be false. Wow. Uh, some authorities think he may have disappeared back into the Mormon community in plain sight, uh-huh. uh, since he knows their ways and the way to talk to him, to give him to, to them, to give him the best benefit. Uh-huh. Uh, they did also state that he may be under an assumed identity, living with a partner who may not know his real identity. Uh-huh. So, if you're listening to this now and you <laughs> think, find mm. out you, yeah, if if Fred answers to the name Jason, it might be this guy. They did say with Jason's knack for lying and conning people that he could probably be taking advantage of a gullible member's generosity. Uh-huh. It's also possible that he fled the country and he could be living in France, Quebec, or Thailand. Yeah. Uh, the most why though specifically he knows the language. Oh, okay, so he speaks Thai and French. Mm-hmm. Okay, he uh, uh, the the most recent credible sighting came in 2008 when an acquaintance of his who was a missionary with him recognized him as they were both stopped at a traffic light near the Hoggle Zoo in Salt Lake City. Okay, uh, when Jason realized who they were both who they both were or that they knew each other. Jason ran the stoplight and sped away. Uh, the unnamed witness told authorities that Jason had a deeper tan than in the 2004 photo on his wanted poster. Uh, Juan Becerra of the FBI in Salt Lake City suggested that Jason was in Salt Lake City to visit people he knew. He said, it's very hard for individuals to change the way they live, the way they behave. This is a guy who stays in shape, likes fitness, likes to look good. We're hoping he's been seen at a nightclub or a fitness club. He further stated that Jason was comfortable outdoors, which may be another reason for wanting to live in Salt Lake City. Uh, Agent Leasing, however, said uh, wherever Jason is, he's probably given up the party boy lifestyle to stay hidden. He's been so over the top before the robbery. If he kept it up, up after, he'd be in handcuffs. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You have two FBI agents that have very differing opinions yeah. of, of what he might be doing. Now. Yeah. But two different schools of thought. Yeah. And, and, and each is credible. That's... But... I, you know, I'm kind of with the second one. Yeah, I think he probably changed his name. And, and you know, yeah, now that you you say it, he did missionary work in France. Yeah, he could be a, a he could speak French like a native. Mm-hmm. Especially if he's been living someplace, you know, where they speak French. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is far more, you know, not just Quebec and in France, but you know, Reunion, um, or different parts of Africa, mm-hmm. where, you know. In the Caribbean, where French is a predominant language. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I think I may have said it, but but we will have the age-enhanced photo on our website. Uh, Jason Derrick Brown is considered to be an armed and extremely dangerous man. If you have any information relating to Jason Derrick Brown, please contact your FBI at FBI.gov or calling their tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And you can That's also... Right. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Call the FBI yeah. line. You can also call your local FBI or the nearest American embassy or consulate. 
Uh, Jason Derrick Brown is a white male, estimated to be five, uh, 5'10 and 170 to 180 pounds. He has blonde hair, green eyes, and is most likely tan. Uh, reporters have noted that his his he strikes a uh, he, he strikes a resemblance to Sean Penn. Okay. Uh, one of Sean's one of Sean Penn's body doubles was actually even once arrested by authorities when they thought <laughs> it was Jason. Yeah. yeah, he looks that much like Sean Penn. Yeah, you'll <laughs> you'll see on the site. He's gone by the aliases Derek Brown, Greg Johnson, Harlan Johnson, Greg Harlan Johnson, John Brown, and Jay Brown. Uh, he speaks fluent French and has a master's degree in international business. So where the Thailand Thai oh, may okay. come in, I don't know. But maybe he doesn't speak Thai. I may have missed that, but definitely fluent French. Uh, he's an avid golfer, snowboarder, skier, and dirt biker. He likes the center of attention and is known to frequent nightclubs, showing off high-priced vehicles, boats, and other toys. Uh, there is currently a $200,000 reward for information leading to his capture. This was doubled from $100,000 on my birthday in 2013. Nice. <laughs> so many things on my birthday. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to cover on this, as we've covered two of, uh, the top 10 most wanted, I, I found these facts that I've, that I found were interesting. Uh, since its inception, 524 fugitives have been on the 10 most wanted fugitive list. 490 have been capped, apprehended or located. Nice. 162 of the fugitives have been captured lo- uh, slash located as a result of citizen cooperation. So again, here, if you have heard, you know, that's right. If you, if you think you might might know him, please do reach out. If you see something, say something. Uh, two fugitives were apprehended as a result of visitors on an FBI tour. Uh, the shortest amount of time spent on the ten most wanted fugitives list was two hours by Billy Austin Bryant in 1969. The longest amount of time on the list was over 32 years by Victor Manuel Garena. Oh, wow. Well, I thought Whitey Ford was a a little closer there, but yeah. 32 years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, Nine fugitives were arrested prior to publication and release, but are still considered officially on the list at one point. And the oldest person to be placed on the list is 80-year-old Eugene Palmer, who was added in May of 2019. Okay. So... That's the story of Jason Derrick Brown. Wow. Uh, you know, I, th- I thought it was fascinating that we had another Arizonan yeah. on my home state um, <laughs> on the on the top 10 most wanted list. And and our listener. It's the heat, man. Probably. Uh, our listener, Jamie, who wanted to hear this, she said she was she's just fascinated by the top 10 list. And she just didn't have a whole lot of information on this guy. And I, and I had to dig quite a bit to find yeah. a, a lot of it. I mean, you can get his, his statistics and whatnot, but, uh, but yeah, thankfully there was the, the crime watch video that I got to get information from because this was, it was a very interesting story and it's very interesting that he is still on the run. He's still on He's the apparently land. extremely smart. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, his playing dumb seemed to work out for him. Yeah. Yeah, he's most likely one of the ones that's probably still alive out there today. Yeah. I think he's probably overseas. Yeah, me too. That's what it sounds like. Sounds like he, yeah. Well, he didn't look like he got on a plane in the Portland airport. I bet he did. Oh or, no, he, or he went somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, they were able to check CCTV. Yeah, that's you know, true. At, at an airport in two thousand, you know, in the, in two thousand four, they could do that. So he most likely got out somewhere else mm-hmm. at another airport. Maybe he crossed into Canada mm-hmm. and was able to get out. Who knows? Who knows? But I, I absolutely think he's overseas. So that's my story for today. Well, thank you, sir. It was a good week. Yeah. 
It's a good one. A lot of a lot of interesting stuff on here. Um, we're that that that'll take us to the end of our show. And just as a reminder, as always, you can find our website at nerdarymurdery.com. Uh, there you can get the information for all of our social media, all of our emails. Uh, so you can contact us, uh, like, uh, like we did with Jamie. She requested this episode and we recorded it. We've had some others that we've done. So we will do our best to record episodes you want to hear. So yes. let us know if there's a subject that fascinates you and you would like us to cover it. We're happy to do so. Uh, you can give us feedback on the show itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, because we want to get better. Uh, don't forget, you can find our merchandise on our website. So you can go out there and show your fandom, have your murdery, ner- nerdery and murdery logo merchandise. Yes. Uh, you can also find our Patreon, where if you wish to donate to the show and help us keep going, we very much appreciate all of you that are patrons. Please and thank you. There's a, you know a few, a, some some bonus spiffs when you get on our Patreon. You do get episodes two weeks early. Yes, you do. Uh, we will probably have more things that we offer down the road as we go. So check that out. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And that's really kind of about it for this week. So excellent. Well, I have been Zig with your nerdery, and I'm Jeffrey with your murdery. Cue the music. Cue the music.